Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch. And I'm Jeremy. This is a weekly history podcast that deep dives into all the stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. Yes. So, (laughs) Jeremy and I kind of joked that, do we continue this podcast with all the things that have been happening in recent news? News? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it's now just... We're just going to call it America the Not-So-Bizarre Anymore. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> everything just feels like it's hard to hard to compete with uh, present-day With, yeah, events. current events. <laughs> yeah. America that's slightly less bizarre than it is now. Yes. Is, is the, what we're changing the title to. Yeah. But in all honesty, I hope everybody's staying safe with everything that's happening and... Just think, in like 10, 20 years, it will be a great episode. Yes. When I can consider it like history. Yeah. 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 You'll be your own, you'll be your own uh, star. I'll be my just own historian, just like. Guest, yeah. 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 Just like sitting there telling it. Yeah. Telling people how it was to to just live through. Sit in my living room watching to live through the, the news. Twenties. Yes. Ah, <laughs> the yes. 20s. The twenties. Well, it started <laughs> off quite strange. <laughs> yeah. So, for this week's presidential trivia, the question is, which president introduced French fries to America? Ooh. You mean freedom fries. Freedom, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't don't think I even have a guess for this one. Uh, If I knew which one of our presidents were Irish, if there are any Irish presidents... I really need to get that. Map. There, there, there are. Yeah, but we don't have like a McGregor or a O'Malley. It's, no, the, it's not like the... President O'Malley, you know. <laughs> oh, you mean like a very obvious yeah, Irish yeah, name? Yeah, 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 yeah. So just no guess this week. Well, shoot, I, I seriously think we need to move my my poster around. I mean, it doesn't help that it's like ten feet away. Yeah. yeah. All right, having consulted my map or my. My timeline of U.S. presidents. I'm going to go with William McKinley. Okay, <laughs> that's that my name, best Irish accent. That, na- that name is Irish enough for you. To- yeah, yeah, I'm satisfied with that. <laughs> okay, well, it's not right. Oh dang it! <laughs> but I will let you know who the president was at the end of this episode. So stay tuned. So when we were in college, your senior year, you started out with your trying to get your pilot's license. Uh, time out. Which senior year are we talking about? Okay. Your, your second senior year. My super senior year. Your super senior year my of college. Lap, my victory lap. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that one. I did. Yeah. And I know you really enjoyed it, at least the flight time that you did get to have. Yeah. And- I had 25 hours in a plane and... It was ter- The very first flight was terrifying. The airport I was flying in and out of was on top of this plateau on the along the Snake River, on the confluence of the Snake and Clearwater Rivers. And so the winds were just atrocious. You know, they would just be gusting up on one side and sucking you down on the other, so... So just like not for not for the person that doesn't faint like turbulence. Faint of heart. Not for not for the faint of heart. That's for sure. <laughs> See, and I've never really minded turbulence yeah. except for the time that I was five years old and I got up to go to the bathroom and turbulence like threw me into the seat in front of me. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, 
Turbulence really hits those small planes right. hard. And it's, it's not good it for anybody that has yeah, anxiety about flying. Right. My my flight instructor was my great uncle. And uh, I remember he was like, all right, I just want you to, you know, it was my first flight. He's like, I just want you to kind of just like be in the cockpit, you know, don't be afraid to grab the yoke and, and just kind of feel how I'm, how I'm flying. And we took off and like, I mean, we were still like barely off the ground. And he was like, can you sit on your hands? <laughs> <laughs> You're too you're too excited about yeah that. yeah because they're you're like they're after. physically connected yeah so if I'm like locked in place he's like it's oh, too tight okay. for him I get yeah, what you're yeah, saying yeah so did you do a lot of instrument reading no so we flew VFR visual flight rules okay um, I had I think maybe a half hour or an hour under IFR conditions which basically they have these like blinders like you see on horses right and you just kind of like. He can still see. Right, which is but I, good. But I can't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, man. It's so crazy. I, I loved it. It was, it was, uh, find something else. Like, I tell you, if you get the opportunity, at least go do like a adventure flight or a discovery flight. That's what they call it. A discovery flight. You can pay like $99 and go do a one hour discovery flight. It's, it's awesome. So, getting into our story. Yeah. Flight instructors during and immediately following World War I often instructed their students to ignore the cockpit instruments. So they basically did, like you were saying, VFR, visual flight reading. Well, well, VFR stands for visual flight rules. Oh, so visual I mean, flight rules. That's right. Okay. Um, but they told them to ignore it? Yeah. I'll and tell you, you get in a sticky situation, that's well, the last thing you well, want to do. Well, we're going to talk about why they <laughs> did that. So pilots were taught to use their eyes and guts, basically, to fly rather oh, than rely gosh. on the instruments installed in the airplane. There were a few reasons for this. One, instrument flying technology that was available was often crude if it was installed in your plane. Two, many pilots that were now instructors had learned to fly without instruments and saw anyone that used instruments as not a real pilot. <laughs> you know, kind of the... The, the good old boys. Macho, yeah. yeah, good old boys. Masculine. Yeah. And three, many pilots did their best to only fly in ideal flight conditions when there were no clouds. Mm. Anyways, so it wasn't... You didn't need instruments. It's not, it's not an issue until it's an issue. Right. <laughs> More pilots died due to flying in inclement weather and crashing than they did in actual combat. What? You didn't even give me like a, a what do you call it? Spoiler alert when you said that? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I had I no idea that, that was going to surprise anybody. Yeah. Between 1921 and 1922, which to be fair is like we're not in an actual war at, at that time, but mm -hmm. these are the stats the year I was able to get stats for, the earliest year. 23% yeah. of flying accidents occurred due to the weather not being clear. Another 55% of accidents were not investigated or the cause was, was determined to be unknown. But it was believed that the majority of those accidents occurred because the pilot lost control while attempting to fly through clouds without any instruments. It's so disorienting when you're up there. Like, yeah. we, we, he would do that. He'd be like... Okay, he'd be, you know, switch, uh, close your eyes. What do you say? Close your eyes, put your hands in your lap, and just, like, sit there. And he was like, I'm going to make a couple maneuvers, and then I want you to open your eyes and take control of the plane. And I would do that. And, like, every time, every time, like, got us into the, I got the plane into the, uh, gosh, I can't even, at, into the attitude 
the position of the plane uh-huh. and that we were going to go into a tailspin, like oh, a, into gosh. like a spiral, yeah. spiral dive. Like that's every, every time, yeah. 100% of the time. It's because it's really easy to do. <laughs> you get so disoriented. Yeah. Even no matter like, you know, no matter even how much you've flown, yeah. like that's just, that's it, why they came up with instruments. It's what, because, ha- what happens. Yeah. Because your inner ear doesn't work that well. Right. Um, it so, goes, it's like a, it's like a drunk girl on a, yeah, on, exactly. On a boat, you yeah. Know? <laughs> so the reason though, that those 55% weren't, they didn't say were caused, you know, they didn't say were necessarily caused to weather or and yeah. not being able to they read instruments is yeah. because not reading instruments was like not a box to like check. check. Yeah. So we just don't know how many were caused due to that. Yeah. You know, they pretty much back in the day, you just jump in a play on a, beautiful sunny day go fly around and if you saw if you saw a cloud if you saw a cloud starting to come in you're like oh we gotta land because i can't do that (laughs) no i'm saying the certifying test oh yeah yeah was there a test uh yeah there was a test back then yeah yeah but yeah no in the nobody flew in cloudy weather yeah you only took off if it was sunny outside Mm -hmm. that's it a lot of research and development went into creating better cockpit instruments that would aid pilots in flying in bad weather. In 1926, the U.S. government passed the Air Commerce Act that gave the Department of Commerce the authority to create airways, airports, navigation facilities, and weather services to be used by airline operations. This led to the establishment of radio navigation beacons, light beacons, emergency landing fields, and weather reporting stations. The commercial side of flying took advantage of these improvements and consistently started flying in less than ideal weather and at night. Because, you know, if you're delivering packages or... That's yeah. mainly what the commercial industry was doing. You can't fly packages doing. overnight if you don't fly at night. Well, and, you know, you are you want to get as many packages delivered as fast as you can in the commercial industry. Mm-hmm. So you're learning how to fly at night. You're learning how to fly through bad weather. Implement weather there, yeah. So they're, like, taking advantage of instrument reading. In 1928, James H. Doolittle was working at the Full Flight Laboratory in Mitchellfield, New York, as work focused on creating a way to land airplanes in fog. After spending a year creating and testing flight instruments and radio landing equipment, Doolittle performed the first completely blind flight in 1929, where he only used instruments to fly his plane. His cockpit was completely covered in canvas so that he couldn't see outside. He did have so he did have a co-pilot that could see. Okay. Kind of like how you were saying with but the But I would blinders. hate to be that guy because what if he gets you into <laughs> such a situation? Yeah. You're just kind of screwed. Yeah. I think it was kind of like Cuz there's like certain there's like certain conditions that you are physically because of physics and aerodynamics that you just will not be able to recover from. Sure. Like I think the co-pilot was a well-trained enough pilot that he would be like, you know, at the point where it was would be just, before it was going to get sticky, he was going to pull him out. Uh, well. You hope so, anyway. You'd hope so. But it didn't matter. He made it. Yeah, but it didn't matter because he made it. Yeah. Doolittle strongly recommended that the Air Corps equip its aircraft with the instruments and train their pilots on how to use them. By the way, the Air Corps was a part of the Army yeah, at right. this time. Army had planes before the Air Force did. Yes. <laughs> also the, because the Air Force wasn't created, but. Yes. <laughs> The hardware and training quickly took off in the commercial sector of flight, but failed to be executed on the military side. Yeah. Again, the commercial flights, um, they're taking advantage. They want to fly at night. They want to fly in bad weather. So they're yeah. taking advantage of all these new instruments. The military's like, military's like, eh. 
We don't, we need, don't that. need it. We don't need that. We train our pilots. But eventually, more and more pilots in the military began to see the advantages of using instruments to fly. What? In 1932, Colonel William C. Ocker and Captain Carl Crane published one of the first training manuals on instrument flying. So can I just say this really fast? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know why you wouldn't instantly adopt it. Because literally, in order to fly at night, like, you you gotta have good enough illumination so you can see the ground. Which also means that you're getting essentially just silhouetted in the sky. Right. Because they can hear you, and because... There's a loom. Right. They can see you. And then, so, like, I just doesn't, like, t- like I don't know how they weren't just instantly, like, wait, this means we can fly in 0% a loom or cloudy weather, which are cover for the aircraft. Right. That's kind of the crazy thing is they're like, no, we'll just keep only doing missions on bright, sunny days. And right. that's the only time we're going to do flying missions. Right. Right. When it would help a lot to be I mean, able to do them at any time. I mean, aviators are prima donnas, though. <laughs> yeah. They do have to get their eight hours of sleep <laughs> with a steak, a surf and turf meal before they go. And uh, I could say that because I know a few We have of them. friends in aviation. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're really good guys, but they are, they, they are high maintenance. Yes. <laughs> so, Ocker petitioned the Air Corps several times to adopt his training program, but he was continually turned down. Due to his incessant badgering for instrument training in the Air Corps, Ocker was court-martialed once and consequently subjected to two sanity board hearings. What? Luckily, that didn't damage his career. <laughs> he was able to prove that he was sane. He just right. really thought instrument reading was important. Okay, so this guy, like, literally groundbreaking technology that has been proven by a commercial industry. Yes. And then I think I have I have to think back to the second lieutenant who sent the email to a general in Washington D.C. from our episode, uh, Buffalo Soldiers and Their Iron Steeds. Oh yeah. And you know where you got a, in that instance, you had a lieutenant who's like, "Hey, I want to ride bikes," you know, when they're literally inventing the car. Right. Like I feel like how did that guy not just get, get instantly turned down? Shut, instantly yeah. shut down. Right. And then this guy is getting shut down. Constantly. Yeah. Uh, But he makes it through his sanity board hearings. He proves that he's of sound mind. Mm -hmm. He's actually really smart and with it. And eventually, the chief of the Air Corps, General Lamb, agreed to institute instrument training in the Corps starting in the mid-1930s. The military is, like, way behind (laughs) commercial flying. Five, Five, six years behind. Yeah, at least. Yeah. By now. Um, though this training would now only be offered to advanced students in the Air Corps. So the students that they wanted to survive. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The training program had a rocky start due to few training aircraft being equipped with the proper instrumentation and a shortage of qualified instructors. You don't have anybody really in the military that can instruct these new students because they never flew with instruments, so... Who are you going to get to train these new students, right? Right, right. There were also no check flights or certification procedures to make sure that the pilots that made it through their program were competent to fly with the instruments. Mm. For the most part, Air Corps pilots continued to fly using only VFR, using only their eyes and guts, and tried to land their planes whenever clouds started to roll in. Hmm. Commercial pilots continued to excel. Which is really inconvenient where you're not where you want to be when the clouds come in. Yes. (laughs) There's a 
Like, I feel like there's more bad landing spots than there are good landing spots. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Especially because what time frame are we talking about here? They didn't have this is the 30s. freeways. They didn't yeah. have freeways. No, no there's. <laughs> Especially like they do today. And I mean, even nowadays, it's crazy the amount of planes you hear about landing on highways and freeways. You think at least there might have been more fields, more open fields back then, maybe? Yeah, but they probably have like some odd piece of farm equipment. Equipment sitting in Just the middle. Just sit of in the middle, yeah. Uh, no, yeah, like I'm saying, it's not great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Commercial pilots continued to excel in flying with instruments, and by 1932, all commercial pilots had to take an extensive instrument training program and then pass a rigid check flight test before they were able to receive their pilot's license. This meant that commercial pilots could fly around the clock and in most weather conditions while the military would cancel operations that didn't take part during a sunny day. <laughs> So silly. In 1934, President Franklin D. Roosevelt fired all civilian airmail contractors and gave the job of carrying the mail to the Air Corps. Oh, God. And so gave, much lost mail. <laughs> and gave them only 10 days to prepare for the switch. Oh, gosh. He's like, hey, in 10 days, Army, you're taking over the oh, air. God. You're taking over airmail. They're like, uh, okay. Do we still have, <laughs> can we start tanks? <laughs> This meant that the Air Corps would now need to fly 24 hours a day and in inclement weather. The Air Corps quickly got to work trying to install the proper instruments in aircraft and provide training to air crews. Yeah. So did did you do you know what uh, what instruments those are? So right now, I believe they are now just at this time they're just doing the needle and ball. I want to say it was called. Okay. It was like the three two one system. So there's a, uh, it's commonly referred to as the, the six pack, right? So you've got your attitude indicator, which is that one where you've got like, there's like an orange line and that's the plane. And then there's a ball in the middle of it. And that's supposed to be like the horizon to tell you whether you're climbing or descending. And then you've got the heading indicator which is just a, a basically a magnetic direction of the plane. And then you've got the turn indicator, which is the one with the ball in it. And so it tells you if the plane's pivoting. I, I, I couldn't tell you what it yeah, was. Yeah. No, that's that. Well, that's a six pack. That's okay. like pretty, that's a common, uh, like uh, now. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, from what it sounds like, this is not what they had, or this is not what they were installing mm. in the military planes, okay. perhaps. All right, sorry. Well, it's okay. But that's what they call it nowadays, is okay. your six-pack. You've got your uh, uh, three gyroscopic and uh, three pitot-static I know that they were not gyroscopic. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, it was very rudimentary they what they were installing like a, into the military planes. They just had like a... I wish I'm just I, imagine, I'm I know just wish imagine, I would have written it down, but just I was imagine, like, that's not important. I'm just imagining like a lead ball hanging from a string in the center of the cockpit. Like that's their. It, it might have been like that. <laughs> like, uh, if the ball's like hitting the front glass, does that mean we're climbing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like no, that means we're falling. Yeah. <laughs> what does it mean when the ball's doing this? Yeah, flailing wildly. <laughs> Not good, John. Not so, good. So anyway, yeah. So the Air Corps is like, hey, guys, we should probably put instruments in our planes because a yeah. lot of them don't have them. Yeah. And so they're getting to work doing that. The Army Airmail mission launched on February 19th, 1934. So winter. Mm. 
Great time. Great time. Running 24-hour ops. Yes. After one week of the mission, there were eight (laughs) aircraft destroyed, five airmen killed, and six were critically injured. And 72,000 pieces of mail lost (laughs) forever. (laughs) The army imposed several restrictions on when airlines could deliver mail, which greatly diminished the amount of mail that was able to be delivered a day. So now they're like, hey, this isn't safe. So you're only going to be flying at these times. And so now mail's getting taken forever. And they have planes. And they were getting mail so quickly before. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Army. Still, by June of that year, there had been a total of 66 accidents. This is like with like the diminished flying time. 12 fatalities and 15 critical injuries. A War Department Mm. committee investigated the airmail program and found that many of the accidents were caused by weather and darkness. God. It's like, yeah, we could, any, like, anybody could have told you that. Yeah. That that was, that, that was going to happen. Right. In 1935, the Army ordered that all observation, basic training, and attack aircraft be equipped for instrument flying. So Equipped? They now, haven't now required now, training now yet. Now it's being equipped. They haven't required the training well, yet, though? All Army aviators were required to have an annual instrument flying requirement of 10 hours and pass an instrument flying examination every six months. Despite the new equipment and regulations, there were still many old school pilots who believed that instrument flying was annoying and enforcement of the regulations <laughs> were what you would call very relaxed. <laughs> They'd be like, yeah, sure, you got your 10 hours. Sure, you passed. Bit. Yeah. And you know what's crappy is, like, to be the guy in that situation that, like, sees the writing on the wall and goes, like, no, I, I want to do that training, though. Yeah, yeah. No, like, I would really <laughs> like to know how to fly the plane when, like, things get sticky. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, if there's clouds, like, there's clouds a lot of the yeah. time. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like most days when I go outside, there's clouds. <laughs> yeah. And we don't even live in Seattle. <laughs> right. So... This they It did improve, though, a little bit, and by the end of the 30s, pilots in the Army Air Forces were required to complete 20 hours per year, and instrument training was a part of all pilot training programs, not just the advanced Ooh, program. Nice. When World War II began in 1939, the War Department ordered that the amount of pilots graduating from the pilot program go from 300 per year to 4,500 per year. Okay, wait, time out. Can we just say, like... I think part of the reason why that that took so long to implement, too, was because there was probably a whole bunch of senators who were like prior service and aviators I, and I or flew even without an instrument. Yeah, yeah. They're like, these, these young whippersnappers, they don't need to, they don't need this. This is a crutch for them. These soft hand pansies yeah. don't know how to fly a real plane. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Exactly. Like, just because something's new and different doesn't mean that it's bad. It's okay for change. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) No, I, like, that's probably exactly what happened. Yeah. And both both the Joint Chief of Staff and the And, like, all the other senators are like, well, we... We're not soft hand pansies, and, yeah. and those are the guys that have flown these things before. Yeah, it can't so be that hard. We're not going to approve the funding yeah. for this. Yeah. Um. So it, the pilot program continues to increase, like, its amount of pilots that it's graduating. And until it hit a high of 102,000 per year in 1943. Nice. So they are cranking, cranking out, out pilots, pilots for World War II. Oh, yeah, I think. Well. We had a lot of planes. They needed. They had a lot of planes. They needed a lot of pilots. Yeah. 
Training courses were condensed from a total training time of one year to seven months to get pilots graduated faster. Many civilian contractors took over primary training so that the military could focus on basic and advanced pilot training. Mm-hmm. In 1942... Which, because when you think about it, you want to keep as few people possible back here training. Right. And so by hiring the civilians who were you know, supposedly either too old or had some other disqualifying condition to actually join the service. Right. Those are the ones that you're going to utilize to train. Yeah. No. Because they're still able to train and instruct. But yeah. So they're still helping the war effort, effort yeah. even though they're not able to actually deploy forward. Right. In 1942, an investigation found that instrument training was still not being taken seriously. And many of the newly graduated pilots were not confident in their ability to use instruments, so they just didn't use them. Well, that seems like the wrong thing to do. Yeah. And there's now a lot of pilots now serving in World War II that don't know how to use instruments or just not good at it. Yeah. And so they're just not using them. Oh, gosh. The Army Air Force was also instructing these new pilots on outdated instruments instead of the more advanced gyroscopic instruments like you were talking about. The what? Gyroscopic? Sorry. Hyroscopic? <laughs> the more advanced gyroscopic instruments. Hi- hyro? Gyro? <laughs> what is it? Gyro? Is it a gyro? Euro? Euroscopic? <laughs> Euroscopic. <laughs> Sorry. Does it come with lamb? <laughs> Hummus? And tzatziki sauce? In 1942, Colonel Joe Duckworth, who had been working as a commercial airline pilot, but was a previous pilot in the Air Force, Army Air Force, was recalled back into active duty and given the job of adapting the Navy's training program to suit Army pilots. Ah. He had been a commercial pilot, I want to say, for Ford, and so he knew how to use instruments. He knew how to actually fly. This guy knew how to fly. Yeah. After creating the new training program, Colonel Duckworth was given command of the first instrument instructor school located at Bryan Air Force Base in Texas. Hmm. Duckworth's program took off and even the graduates who did the- You know what? They should have been training in like Michigan, Minnesota. Well, give them a break. They need to to like take steps. (laughs) I know. But I mean, this just goes to show like aviators. Yeah. Like- High maintenance. We don't want to be cold in our planes <laughs> while <Texas>. flying. <laughs> and that's why they're in Texas. Yes. And currently located at Fort Rucker, Alabama. Yeah. And <laughs> anyways, sorry. So anyways, uh, his program did really well. And even his graduates who did the worst in his program scored higher in their check rides than the best graduates of the old training program. So it's working. Mm-hmm. While at Bryan Air Force Base, Duckworth made sure to visit with students and line personnel every day. He did not wear his rank on his flight suit and would often sit with students that were waiting to fly so that he could ask them what they thought of the course and how it could be improved. So it said it would usually take students a while to figure out who this guy was. They said he like kind of just seemed like a really friendly like grandpa figure talking to them he <laughs> was really nice figure. and yeah. so they were like really open to talk to him and yeah. then they'd be like oh my gosh that was colonel duckworth oh shit <laughs> yeah on days that the weather was too poor for students to fly where some students would say you couldn't even see the runway from the runway <laughs> duckworth would take off in an at6 a single engine trainer plane known as a texan just to prove to the students that you could fly using only instruments in bad weather nice 
Like, see, pay attention. Like, mm-hmm. He's like, I, I walk the walk. Yeah, yeah. On the morning of July 27th, 1943, Duckworth was having breakfast with a group of British pilots that were training at the Air Force Base. Word was being spread around the base that a hurricane was coming ashore near Galveston and that the AT-6s would need to be flown out for safety. You don't want a hurricane destroying your all of fleet. your planes. Yeah. Thinking that they knew what a hurricane was because they had experienced some thunderstorms in the British Isles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. The British destroyed our fleet. <laughs> the Brits started to give Duckworth a hard time about how frail his AT-6s must be to not be able to withstand some rain and wind. Duckworth's like, no, it's a hurricane. You don't have hurricanes this in Britain. Is, this is different. You have, yeah, you have some bad weather. This yeah. is a, this is a hurricane. You don't know yes. what you're talking about. Yeah. Those cheeky Brits. <laughs> and then Duckworth was like, also, my AT-6s are awesome. Yeah. He... Yeah, he liked the Texan. He was a it was a two seat trainer, less than thirty feet long, had a wingspan of forty two feet, and was built to survive some of his most inept student pilots. So like, <laughs> That's why he liked them. Yeah, he's like they're sturdy. Yes, <laughs> they're hardy planes. <laughs> Duckworth finally got tired of hearing the Brits make fun of the Texan and bet them that he could fly the Texan into the hurricane and back out unscathed. Oh. Winner would have to buy the other a highball that night at the officers' club. That's it. That's the prize. A cocktail. Huh. One cocktail. That's all that's being bet. Yes. Government fraud waste to be said it's finest. <laughs> the Brits quit. That's like, did you ever hear the story about the, there was a pilot. God, I had to have been back east somewhere, like an Air Force pilot, who literally took a, I think it was an F-16 jet and was like oh yeah this plane's gotta go to virginia or something and he jumped in it and flew and he literally just went to go visit his girlfriend because <laughs> then he like like got off went on his date i'm pretty sure stayed the night and then like got back in his plane and flew back to whatever air force <laughs> right. base he came from i'll have to find the story yeah send that to me but that's like that's just what yeah so the Brits quickly agreed to the bet. They're like, sure, we'll bet a drink on it that yeah. you'll fly into the hurricane. So Duckworth, needing a navigator, began to look around the room. and He should have took one of the cheeky Brits. Well, when he uh, landed on Lieutenant Ralph O'Hare, which I feel really bad. <laughs> this guy was the only navigator there for breakfast. <laughs> he was like, O'Hare, you're flying with me into the hurricane. And I was like, what? It's like... Can I finish my eggs, sir? (laughs) (laughs) O'Hare was worried that the single engine might get flooded from the heavy rain and quit mid-flight because O'Hare knew what a hurricane was. (laughs) (laughs) But he trusted Duckworth's skill and agreed. Also because I don't think he turned down this guy. Yeah. Like the commander at like of the whole program. The base, yeah. You don't tell him no. Yeah. Can I finish my bacon? Duck was like, no, you don't want to puke it in, puke it up in the plane. <laughs> I don't know if he said that. But yeah, yeah. Because Duckworth was sure that headquarters would not approve of the flight due to several the conditions. Yeah. yeah. Due the to co- the hurricane. The hurricane. The conditions, the fact that they were evacuating the rest of the fleet. Yes. Uh, he decided to just go for it without asking for permission first. As they took off and near the hurricane, O'Hare kept going over in his head on how to use his parachute. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm assuming he survived, or yeah. he wrote that down in his, in his note. little notebook. <laughs> yeah. 
As they that was got, later recovered. As they got closer to Galveston, an air traffic controller at the Houston airport radioed in and asked if they knew there was a hurricane close. When they said they did and they were going to fly into it, the air, contro- the air traffic controller asked where he should send search parties to find their wreckage. <laughs> as they approached the hurricane, the air became very turbulent. Remember, we're talking, you were talking earlier about how, like, especially in these smaller planes, like, oh, yeah. the- it just kind of really bounces you around yeah yeah and i mean in a hurricane's literally because of like hot winds and cooler winds yeah transitioning coming up off the water and stuff so yeah. you're just constantly just going in and up and down up and down. Yeah. o'hare described it like being tossed about like a stick in a dog's mouth finally they broke through into the eye of the storm there were bright clouds above them and when they looked down they could see the texas countryside the eye was about nine or ten miles across, and they did a couple loop de loops. They did a couple rounds going around in yeah. the eye of the storm, and then Duckworth decided it was time to go back, and they flew back into the thick storm clouds where they were pounded by heavy rain and wind until they escaped and landed back at base. Fine. Unscathed. Unscathed. Wow. The breath. The birds were like, oh, so? Yeah. So, and then the hurricane hit, and they're like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> when they landed, the base's weather officer, Lieutenant William Jones Burdick, approached and asked how it was to fly through the hurricane. This guy's like a total nerd. weather nerd. Yeah. And he's like, oh, my gosh. Imagine him like. I'm uh, so jealous. Yeah. <laughs> Come, come on, what, come on, Ralph. Tell me all about it. Tell well, me. So about he basically it. was like, "I'm really jealous. Um, would you take me through the hurricane, and so I can collect data?" And Duckworth is like, "Sure." And O'Hare's like, "Take my seat. I'm out. <laughs> done. <laughs> go for it. I gotta go get. Another, I gotta go get another breakfast. What done? I need to go change my pants. <laughs> get another breakfast. That was awful. Yeah." <laughs> And so Duckworth and Jones Burdick took off. You, you know who that reminds me of? The weatherman? Uh, Twister. Uh, what's her name? Oh, I can't think of her name. Helen Hunt. Yes, Helen Hunt. She just loves it. So, yeah, Duckworth and Jones Burdick took off to fly through the hurricane. During the second flight, Jones Burdick made sure to take notes of the turbulence, the static on the radios, temperature, and the amount of rainfall. They were able to make it to the eye of the hurricane and then back to base, again unscathed. I told you, like, this Duckworth guy, like... Loves it. He knows how to fly a plane. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, like, the other thing about even flying in those conditions, even with instruments, like, imagine... Like, they don't stay stable because the plane's not flying stable. Right. So, literally, your instruments are just jumping all over the place. Mm Mm-hmm. So, like, it's one thing to be flying in a condition where you can't just see, but it's still relatively stable atmosphere. Right. And you can still fly at straight and level flight without hitting a whole bunch of turbulence. But then to be able to go ahead and fly in conditions where you can't see and the atmosphere is turbulent and you're getting jostled around and literally all of your instruments are just bouncing back and forth and you're trying to like i guess in your head like envision what the average of of them just flying all over the place looks like you know yeah to, like no determine. that's what i'm saying like yeah. this guy goes beyond just being able to read instruments like yeah. this guy is able to think ahead yeah. knows when the plane jumps that he needs to adjust and yeah. he's like he's yeah this guy is just 
I have a small crush on Duckworth. Oh, man. <laughs> Better get that pilot's license. <laughs> <laughs> and we got this guy that was like a grandpa-looking dude you, in the I'll 40s. Fly, I'll fly you in a hurricane, baby. <laughs> well, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm going to get a pilot's license. I still don't want to fly a Dropping hurricane. out of law school. <laughs> Dropping out of law school. No. I take it back. <laughs> When word of Duckworth's flight into the hurricane spread, meteorologists were very excited to hear about their experience and data they had collected. Like More nerds gathered on the tarmac. Yeah. Um, well, because basically before then, nobody had thought you could fly a plane into a hurricane before. Because the winds are doing this, going round and round and, and everybody, round. And everybody's round. like, hell no. Yeah, yeah. So they had been using ships, but still ships don't want to be caught in a hurricane. No, because a ship you're literally at the whim of the Right. The so they ocean were they were using ships. The they they were using ships to be able to radio and be like this is what's happening, these are the winds, this is the temperature. It might be a hurricane and they were trying to use kind of that data to predict hurricanes and like mm-hmm. how you know how bad they were going to be and where they're going to be going. Um but it wasn't great. Hmm. Um you know, it just wasn't um, there still need to be a lot of improvement. And then yeah. also during World War II, there was a lot of times where they needed to be, these ships needed to be radio silent because they were going against like German U-boats and stuff. And so then these meteorologists weren't even getting real time, the, data. you know, the poor data that they were even getting before. Yeah. And yeah. so they were, they were pretty, pretty stoked about yeah, Duckworth's yeah, flight. Were, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then this lieutenant's data that he actually took in the hurricane. Yeah. Yeah, so now um, proving that a plane could be flown into a hurricane for data collection purposes, the Joint Chiefs of Staff approved hurricane reconnaissance missions in 1944. On July 17th, Captain Alan C. Wiggins piloted the first authorized flight into a <laughs> hurricane. There's a big asterisk next to that one. Yeah. Authorized is like underlined. Yeah, yeah. And bolded. Yeah. On September 10th, 1944, the Navy flew a plane into a hurricane located 250 miles north of Puerto Rico to collect data. As the hurricane passed along the outer fringes of the Bahamas, the Army, Air Force, and Navy continued to fly planes into the hurricane to collect data. There's kind of planes just going in and out. Into it. Just right into it. Yep, just right into it. On September 12th, the hurricane neared Cape Canaveral, Florida, with winds over 100 miles per hour and sank the USS Warrington, killing 247 men and leaving only 68 survivors. The hurricane continued along the Atlantic coastline, capsizing two Coast Guard cutters near the outer banks of North Carolina. The hurricane eventually made landfall in Long Island, New York, after sinking another Coast Guard ship near Rhode Island, killing all 17 aboard. The hurricane was later known as the Great Atlantic Hurricane of 1944, and it killed 50 people that were on land between North Carolina and New England. Hmm. However, it is believed that those numbers would have been much higher if the Weather Bureau hadn't been able to gather data from the military planes that were flying in and out so that they could and return sound the alarm to evacuate coastal residents all along the Atlantic. Hmm. A hurricane that had struck Long Island in New England six years before with no warning had killed 600 people. Wow. So they're going to take 50 people Over as 600. a win. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it was all thanks to all the pilots going in and out and they were Thank able you, to. Yeah. yeah. It really, it's all thanks to Duckworth. Yeah. 
1946, pilots who flew weather reconnaissance missions were part of the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron, named the Hurricane Hunters. The Hurricane Hunters are still around, and they are assigned to the Air Force Reserves. They work alongside the NOAA's Hurricane Hunters to, pr- to provide aerial support and data to the National Hurricane Center. Hmm. Cool. And that's the story of Duckworth, the guy that flew into a hurricane for one cocktail. <laughs> that's it. One mixed drink. Yes. But really, he did it twice for one mixed drink. Yeah. <laughs> we did it once for a mixed drink and second just for... Science. Just for science. For science. Yes. <laughs> But you could argue that both flights were for a mixed drink. You would hope that somebody would have bought him more than one mixed I drink that, that night. I, I bet, bet he it. didn't pay for any drinks that uh, night. Yeah, I almost guarantee it. <laughs> or for a long time after. Yeah. I hope those Brits like spent all their money buying booze, buying booze for him yeah, yeah. and for everybody else yeah. at the officers club. Yeah. My sources for this story are The Evolution of Instrument Flying in the U.S. Army by Major David M. McIntosh, Hurricane Watch, Forecasting the Deadliest Storms on Earth by Jack Williams and Bob Sheets, The 1943 Surprise Hurricane by Bill Reed, which is the surprise hurricane is the one that Duckworth flew Flew into. into. Relis Recollections. Oh, that was like the name of it? Yeah, that's what they called it, the Surprise Hurricane of 1943. Because they didn't really know it was coming until it was basically there. Jeez. Relis Recollections. Brian Field Officer Flew Into a Tropical Storm on a Bet by Tim Gregg. And Duckworth's Legacy by Carol V. Glines. Nice. All right. Presidential history. Trivia. Presidential, yeah, trivia. That's what I meant. Who was the president to introduce French fries to America? And it was not an Irish person. Uh, has nothing to do with Irish people and their love of potatoes. Okay. It was Thomas Jefferson who loved France. Mm. He brought them to America, and when he introduced them, he said, these are potatoes prepared the French way. Mm. Where did fries come from? I don't know. Because they're fried? I don't know. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. So what happens when you bake French fries? I, I can't tell you. Are they French bake? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know enough about the uh, the history. The history of the, what you do with the French culinary. Fries. There, it's probably this whole thing about how baked French fries aren't actually French fries, and <laughs> they should be called by something else. You know, <laughs> something too snooty for any uh, for me to care. Uh, really? Uh, yeah. Well. Uh, I thought that this would be a good time to just give you guys, uh, for those of you that are new listeners or that don't necessarily know our background, we appreciate you checking us out. Uh, you can find us on many, many, many different platforms. We've got a Facebook page that, uh, we post fun little audio clips and, and picture pictures from, uh, some of the episodes, uh, but Jordan came came up with this came to me with this idea for a podcast a few years ago and uh 20 October 2019 she released her first three episodes uh we've had a few other guests on to co-host and I've been co-hosting the majority of the others so uh this is a part-time gig for us so we appreciate your support and f- listening 
Uh, if you'd like to support us, reach out. Uh, we've got plenty of merchandise in the store to to purchase. It's always fun to to be able to send out a new order. So check it out. It's uh, americathebazaar.com forward slash store. I think if you just go to americathebazaar.com, it's pretty pretty self-explanatory how to get to our little merchandise shop. Yeah. So. so. Yeah, and we yeah definitely um, appreciate all the new listeners that we've gotten, and you know, with still again with everything going on that's crazy in the world, and especially America right now, we hope you guys stay safe, stay healthy, and until next time, stay, stay weird, weird, America. America.